we're going we're gonna to talk about really three questions. And these are questions that all of us in our lives are going to answer. So whether we do that intentionally and thoughtfully or um, we, we don't try to answer these questions, we just live our lives with blinders on, looking back on our lives, our lives will have answered these questions. Um, the way that we live our lives will answer these three questions. So what are they? First question, who am I? So a question of identity, who am I? The second question, where do I belong? So the question of community, who are my people? Where do I belong? And then the third question is, what do I do with my freedom? How do I spend my time? What is my life about? What do I do with my freedom? So we're going to take one of these questions each night for the next three nights. So tonight we're going to be talking about who am I? And so my task this weekend is to try to help you begin to think thoughtfully about these questions. And hopefully by the end of the weekend, you will be equipped to, um, to answer these questions for yourselves. And I know that in this room, you guys are coming from one of two places. Some of you are all in. Some of you have, have wrestled with the claims of Christianity. You've wrestled with the claims of Jesus. And you say, hey, I want to be about following Jesus. I want to be about being a Christian as I go to college. That's great. And we're so glad that you're here this weekend. And hopefully that it's going to be helpful for you as you, as you consider that. Um, some of you um, are not sure yet. You're here. You're curious about the Christian faith. You're still investigating it. Um, you've got a lot of questions. You're not sure that the God of the Christian faith can, can handle those questions. Or maybe you're here because your parents sent you as like their last-ditch effort to get you in front of something Christian before you, they could no longer tell you what to do. Um, if that's you, we're so glad that you're here, um, too. And really hope that this is a place that, um, regardless of how you got here, that you would feel the freedom and really take the opportunity... To, to ask these questions that, um, of yourself as we ask them together. Um, something I want to say to both groups before we get started, um, whether you're all in or you're, you're um, curious, not sure where you are um, coming in. Something I say every week at our fellowship meeting with RUF at Wake Forest, I say the RUF is for the convinced and the unconvinced. This is true of any campus ministry in college, for the convinced and the unconvinced. So the convinced, the convinced Christian um, who wants to follow Jesus, um, the campus ministry is for you, the un, or the, and the convinced skeptic. You are convinced of what you believe, but you're, you're willing to engage with the Christian faith. And the unconvinced, if you're somewhere on the spectrum between faith and doubt, um, or convinced Christian and convinced um, skeptic, um, we're glad that you're here. So um, I hope that when you're in college, when you leave here and go to college, that you will take the time to thoughtfully engage with the deepest questions of life and to be curious enough to listen to what the Bible says and to figure out what you believe for yourself and why you believe it. So what I want you to do now is if you guys would grab a Bible, they're in stacks around you, and if you would open to John chapter 1, starting in verse 35, it's on page 740 in the blue Bible, page 40, that's where it is, and just put a mark in it and look up. So so um, there's a set of movies that have come out over the past think, 20 years. Um, have y'all seen Zoolander? Is that yeah. a, I love that. Some people, all right. So Zoo, if you're not unfamiliar with it, Zoolander 1 and 2, um, they should have made a sequel, but they did. Uh, it's the story of Derek Zoolander played by Ben Stiller, and he's a male model, and his life is about being really, really ridiculously good looking. 
And, and then there's this other male model named Hansel, who's played by Owen Wilson. You guys familiar with the movie? Okay. So the movie Zoolander take up the question, who am I? Um, it's implicit in the first movie, and it's just blatant in the second movie. And there's this scene in the second movie where um, Hansel, Owen Wilson, runs off onto this rooftop in this Italian villa, and he yells out into the sky, who am I? And he looks across the villa at another Italian villa, I guess is what it is, and there's Derek Zoolander, played by Ben Stiller, who's also yelling out on a rooftop, who am I? And Hansel says, or I guess Derek says to Hansel, um, hey Hansel, are you trying to figure out who you are also? And Hansel says, yep. And then across on another rooftop, there's a cameo, and it's Katy Perry, and she sings, who am I? And Zoolander says to her, hey Katy, yeah, it's like, when will we find out who we, who we really are? And Katy Perry says, I know, right? And then Neil deGrasse Tyson is there, the astrophysicist. And he's on a rooftop, and he says, who am I? And you know it's a bad cameo when they have to say the person's full name so the audience knows who it is. So Zoolander says, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, you don't know who you are? And he responds, in an ever-expanding universe, slowly pulling itself apart into nothingness. What use does the question, who am I, even have? Um, and then they're like, oh, it so, doesn't mean anything. Um, so the, but throughout both, silly, silly, very silly movie. But throughout both of these movies, the question of who am I is twinned with another question. And that question is, who is my king? For Zoolander, the king of his life, the most important thing, the standard by which he ordered his reality was this ideal of being really, really ridiculously good looking. And when being ridiculously good-looking was his king, that answered the question for him, who am I? I mean, I know this is an absurd example, but it reveals this principle, that whatever you name as king, you give the authority to name you. Whatever you name as king, you give the authority to name you. Name your king, and your king names you. We see this everywhere. Um, Another movie, we see it in Black Panther. So I just saw this last week. in Wakanda, Okoye, who is the great warrior, she's the woman with the red, red dress and the staff, who's like the greatest warrior in Wakanda, and um, she's part of the royal guard who's sworn to protect the king, and there's this, if you haven't seen the movie, there's this battle scene at the end where there's one of the tribes is warring against Wakanda, and the leader of that tribe is Okoye's husband, and they, fight up, they face off in battle, and he says, you wouldn't kill me, would you? And her response is, for Wakanda without question. Right? Her identity um, is inextricably linked to the king. Who the, when she names the king, is then the king names her as the royal guard. This is obvious in sports. If you know anyone or have seen athletes who, like, who are so into their, their sport and then they like, blow out their knee and their season ends and see the way that that crushes them, maybe that happened to you. Or you see it with people going into retirement. Um, two of the greats in the past couple decades, Michael Jordan and Brett Favre, like they just never retired, right? Jordan played, and then he played baseball, and then he came back to basketball, and then he just couldn't get away from, he couldn't figure out who he was apart from his sport. Brett Favre the same way, like after he left the Packers, he played for like every team in the NFL. Like he just kept playing and couldn't, couldn't stop. Like his, they had this, this inability to answer the question, who am I, apart from their relationship to their profession. And the way that we talk about this as Christians is worship. Worship means ascribing worth. So whatever you ascribe worth to, ultimate worth to, you enthrone in your heart. 
you make king. There's a college professor, or well, there was a college professor, essayist, novelist, named David Foster Wallace, and he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. And he said this. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect or being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Whatever you name as king, you give the authority to name you. You name power as your king, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. Name intellect or being seen as smart as king, you'll end up feeling stupid or a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Name beauty or sexual allure as king. You'll always feel ugly. So do you hear what he's saying with this? You name your king, and your king names you. So for us to answer the question, who am I? We must first answer the question, who is my king? So what we're going to do is we're going to open the Bible together, we're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to see what happens when we name him king. So if you guys would open to... um, the page I already had you open to. First John, or John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. We're going to read verses 35 through 42 together. <coughs> Excuse me. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for tonight. Thank you for your word to us tonight. I pray that you would help us, um, help us to read it, help us to make sense of it. We might see Jesus. Um, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to set the scene uh, of this passage for you in the, the preceding verses right before this. John the Baptist has been down at the Jordan River baptizing people, um, preparing them for the coming of the Christ, preparing them for the coming of Jesus. And as he's baptizing them, he sees Jesus walk by and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It says, I saw a spirit descend from heaven like a dove and rest on him. And I don't know him personally, but the one who sent me to baptize you with water said, when you see the one who comes and the spirit descends on him, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And now I've seen it, and he is the Son of God. So in our passage, it's the next day. And so John is there with two of his disciples. Jesus walks by again, and John points, John the Baptist points and says, look, there is the Lamb of God. And his disciples leave him and immediately go and follow Jesus. So what happens here is John names Jesus, makes this statement of worship, this declaration that Jesus is king. And he's a particular kind of king. Look at verse 36. What does he say? He says, the Lamb of God. And we see in the verse 29 before, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then those two disciples, Andrew and this other disciple who's not named, they respond to that name. They own it for themselves, and then they follow Jesus. What we see is that when you meet the true king, you will be willing to abandon everything, even good things, to follow him and to let him name you. So Andrew hears John name Jesus as king, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then after meeting Jesus, he goes and he finds his brother Simon. He says, look, we found the Messiah, the Christ. And then Simon, and then he brings Simon to Jesus. This word Messiah is an Aramaic word. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke, which means Christ, which is a Greek word. um, And they both mean anointed one. And the anointed one was a person who was set apart in Israel to be king. And so by saying we found the Messiah or saying we found the Christ, he's saying we found the king of Israel. We found the true king. So Simon goes to Jesus and Jesus looks at Simon and says, so you're Simon, you will be called Cephas or Peter, which is a word that means the rock. So we see whoever you name as king, you give the authority to name you. And this is one of the functions of kings, that kings... They name people. They give people their identity. They answer for their people the question, who am I? We actually see this in the story of the Bible. As the Bible begins, the way that the, the, way that the Bible begins, the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, is we see God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the king of the universe. And he speaks the name of every created thing and gives them their identity. Right? He says, let there be light. And then he names the light day and the darkness night. He says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered up into one place. Let dry land appear. And then the waters are gathered up, the dry land appears, and he names the dry land earth, and he names the waters the seas. He did this with the entirety of the creation. And he called it, do you guys know what he called it? He called it good. He did this and he called it good. And then at the pinnacle of creation, he made man and woman in his image, He named them Adam and Eve, and he called it all very good. So at creation, we see from the smallest grain of sand to the largest star, and to us humans, made in the image of God, all of us were created by the king, and we were named by him. And we received our identity from God, our king. And we see in this, in the first two chapters of Genesis, this perfect balance and order of creation. Everything we're told was very good. But things didn't end that way. They didn't stay that way. What we read in Genesis 3 is that God's enemy entered into the garden as a snake, and he destabilized Adam and Eve because he whispered lies to them. These lies, can you trust the king who named you? 
Can you really trust him? And our first parents rejected God as their king, and they obeyed the the lies of the serpent. They enthroned themselves as king of their own lives. The Bible calls this sin. Rejecting God as the true king and looking to anything except God to give us our name. And their sin is our sin. That we look to anything except God to give us our name. We answer the question, who am I, by looking to anything other than Jesus to give us our identity. The human heart is a kingmaker. John Calvin wrote that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, um, creating false kings, crowning kings to get named by them. So um, one question for us this weekend is, what are the false kings of the college campus? What are the false kings that are going to whisper to you to try to get you to name them as their king? I thought of a few. Um, academic success, right? If you name intellect or being seen as smart as your king, you're going to end up feeling stupid or a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. If you name popularity as king, if your king is having the most friends or being named cool or liked, then you're going to live in perpetual fear of people not liking you. And you're going to make all of your decisions out of that fear. Maybe it's the fraternity sorority party scene. If your king is being part of the right group, going to the best parties, being part of the in crowd, you will never feel rest. And you will live in between the longing of wishing you were in a better or cooler or more exclusive group. So you'll live between that longing and the fear of being excluded from the group that you're already in. If you name image as your king, if you name beauty or looking good or having the right look as king, then that king will name you ugly or not well-dressed enough. And if you do perfect your image, then all you're going to be thinking about is how good you look and you'll be unable to love anyone because all you will see is the image that they project. And then there's king achievement, which tells you that you are your resume. And the way that King Achievement teaches students to answer the question, who am I, is by looking at what they've accomplished. Looking at what they've accomplished academically, socially, extracurriculars, answering the question, who am I, by asking, what does my resume say? And here's the thing. Any identity other than the one given to you by Jesus will not satisfy you. It will never be enough. It will never truly fit it's actually nothing because it's a false promise from a false king. So then what happens when Jesus renames you? What happens when you look to Jesus to answer the question, who am I? Well, let's look at Peter. So Jesus renames Peter. Peter hears Jesus' name, right? He goes to him, and then Jesus renames Peter. And Jesus tells Peter that he will be a rock. Um, But the story of Peter in the Gospels is anything but solid. If you read the Gospels to see Peter's life, he is a mess. He's an absolute mess. But as he comes to know Jesus as the true king, he becomes solid. And he could look back over his life, over his story, and know know who he is because of who Jesus is. Peter is the rock only if Jesus is is the Lamb of God. Peter is the rock only if Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, I want you to imagine with me that Peter, when Jesus said, you were the rock, if Peter said... Um, hey, Jesus, that's cool. I get it, that's cool, I'm with the rock. Um, but I'm going to take four years off from following you, and then you know, we can reconnect later you know, after, after this. I mean, that's, right, that's a common lie that we hear about college, right? That college is four years off. 
get to take four years off, get to hit the pause button on real life. Um, There's this quote from Tom Petty. I'm going to read. Tom Petty says this. He said, I learned one thing. You have four years to be irresponsible. Relax. Work is for people with jobs. You'll never remember class time, but you'll remember the time you wasted with your friends. So stay out late. Go out with friends on Tuesday when you have a paper due on Wednesday. Spend money you don't have. Drink until sunrise. Work never ends, but college does. Right? It's this myth. College doesn't count. It's not real life. Friends, this is a lie. Um, because whoever you name as king while in college will name you. Like, the authority that you give over to name you is a big deal. It's a big deal to let someone name you. I mean, I see this with my kids. I mean, you saw Leo's six, Mary Landon is four. They name each other all the time. Like, one of the favorite names is Poo Head. Like, that's a, that's a name that they give each other. Um, Mary Clark and I, as their parents, actually have authority to name them. And we took great care in, in choosing their names. And it would be absurd... How absurd would it be for them to say, them to receive the, the, the name that they got from each other rather than the name that they got from their parents, right? Be very careful with whom you let name you, who you give authority to to name you. So one question you might have is, well, why should I let Jesus name me? Why should I name Jesus as my king? C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote the Narnia books and was a, an author in the 20th century, professor he said this he said christianity if false is of no importance and if it's true it's of infinite importance the only thing that christianity cannot be is moderately important the claim of christianity is that if jesus was resurrected from the dead which christianity claims that jesus was resurrected from the dead if he was resurrected from the dead then everything he said was true and he has complete authority He is the true king. So what kind of name does Jesus give? Well, look at what John the Baptist names Jesus. Right? We see this. He says, Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you were there or you were the first audience reading the book of John, you would have heard this phrase, Lamb of God, and fireworks would have gone off in your head. You would have known exactly what he was talking about. He's talking about at least two things. The first thing is you've been talking about, you would have thought of the Exodus. So you would have thought about how when Israel was enslaved in Egypt um, and they cried out to God and God sent Moses to them to rescue them out of Egypt. And the way that God rescued Israel out of Egypt was by sending this series of plagues so that Pharaoh would see the power and authority of God and see that he is the true king. And the last plague that he sent was a plague where he sent um, the death of all the firstborns in Egypt. And what he said to his people through Moses was, what I want you to do is I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill it and eat it together and then take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house. And and the night when I send, um, I'm going to send the destroyer through Egypt, the angel of the Lord will see the blood on the doorposts and will hover over that door and protect your people. It's that lamb's blood um, in place of the life of the firstborn. So they would have heard lamb of God and immediately thought, He's talking about the Passover lamb. And the second thing they would have thought about is this passage from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah um, was a prophet who wrote and prophesied about 750 years before Jesus came. And I want you to listen to this. This is what um, Isaiah says. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now he is talking, the prophet Isaiah is talking about Jesus' death on the cross. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity. The Lord has laid on him the sin of us all, and he went like a sheep to the slaughter. Saying that Jesus, this is a prediction, 750 years before Jesus, that as a payment for my sin, for your sin, um, Jesus went to the cross for you so that you might be forgiven. What Isaiah prophesied, what Passover pointed to, and what the Lamb of God means is that all who trust in Jesus receive justification, which means they receive, because Jesus lived the perfect life that we, we can't live and that we should have lived, lived the perfect life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve, um, we receive forgiveness of sins and he declares us righteous. He names you. If you name Jesus as your king, he renames you, forgiven and righteous and holy. He names you son of God, daughter of the king. Now here's the thing. Um, we hear that, but our tendency is to think that God doesn't actually see us this way. We, we behave, we operate, um, that God actually names us at our worst moments. Right? Our tendency is to think that God names us like in our mugshots. Um, one writer talks about this as mugshot theology. Mugshot theology is seeing yourself even as a Christian, seeing yourself in the mugshot that you have taken of yourself at your worst. When you've named and been named at the worst place in your life. If you think about like Hollywood stars, have you seen it like when, when occasionally you'll see their mugshots because they got caught, um, you know, just out um, the, the doing something that they shouldn't, blackout drunk or, or shoplifting or um, just drugged out, out of control, they get arrested, you see their mugshot, and it just looks nothing like their picture in the glossy tabloid at the checkout aisle, right? It's just this wildly different picture. And there's this sense in which you, and when you name things other than Jesus as your king, you start to feel at home in your mugshot. Like we have this mugshot theology because we know deep down that we deserve to be treated as a, our personal record demands. Like we know, right? we know the things that we've done in thought, word, and deed. Um, we know the things that we've left undone. We know that someone has to pay for what we've done. And that often keeps us from going to Jesus and his cross because we think that we're the ones who need to pay for it. Right? We think that we're the ones who need to somehow atone for what we've done. And then when you name something other than Jesus as your king for long enough, you come to define yourself by your temptations and your record of failure. I mean, for how many of you does your internal dialogue sound something like this? I'm an idiot. I don't deserve love. I'm not good enough. I'm not skinny enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm just not enough. I'm not lovable. If you have faith in Christ, your mugshot is not the truest thing about you. Because Jesus has the authority to name you. And he renames you at great cost to himself and great benefit to you. Jesus is the lamb of God who was slain to take away your sin. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And the Bible calls this grace and it gets better because Jesus names you first. In John's gospel, Peter doesn't name Jesus as king.